I felt this evening I would like to offer this last talk and to really reflect on compassion. Because I think, after all, it's really the essence of why we're all here and why we do what we do. I'm going to start by just relating to you a couple of stories. When I was 17, a rather deranged teenager, (laughs) actually a considerably deranged (laughs) teenager, I rather unexpectedly found myself in India. It wasn't a plan. Anyway, that's another whole long story. Um, And I just hated it. And so I quickly fled to the foothills of the Himalayas and found myself in the small town where the Dalai Lama had set up home. And it was a very small village, really, um, of Tibetan refugees. And I was pretty astounded because this was a group of people who very recently had lost everything and almost on a daily basis new refugees were coming down from the mountains and they would tell their stories of what they had been through to get there many of them seeing their families killed the loss of everything and What astonished me was the degree to which it seemed that their hearts were intact. There was no no sense of rage, desire for vengeance, of hatred or ill will. And I came very quickly to realize that they knew something about compassion that I had no idea about. I mean, I'm quite sure before that in my life, I had in some ways encountered moments of compassion. I couldn't remember them. But this was somehow this startling encounter with these remarkably compassionate hearts. They weren't weak or fragile. They were courageous, they were upright. A couple of months ago, my father had an emergency triple heart bypass and he was in Canada and I was in England and it was going to be some days before I could get there. So a couple of times a day, I would phone the cardiac intensive care unit where he was being looked after. And the nurses would answer. And it would seem like they would spend as long, with, as long on the telephone with me as I needed them to be there. And I was equally astonished at their seemingly somehow this very natural compassion. And my father, as often in these ICUs, had, you know, a nurse assigned to him. And he put her in the emergency ward in his post-operative delirium, as I think often happens in cardiac surgery. He put her in the emergency room with a sprained wrist. And, you know, I called and I, I was falling all over myself, apologizing, you know, and you know, as my father is with you in the emergency room. And she would just listen and she would say, it's not him, you know. It's not him, you know. It's the drugs. It's not him. And it also struck me these people in the ICU, I don't know if they'd ever had any training in mindfulness. I don't know. It's very unlikely that they were Buddhist or anything else. 
but they knew something about this very human compassion. And it, the seeds of compassion, I think, live in our hearts. And compassion is certainly the very essence of a spiritual path of awakening and practice. This, in a way, this whole path is dedicated to understanding suffering, the causes of suffering, the path to its end. Behind me, you see the Buddha statue and you see the statue of Kuan Yin. The Buddha statue is meant to embody the wisdom element. The Kuan Yin statue is meant to embody the compassion element. You notice they are of equal stature. And in this teaching or tradition, it is wisdom and compassion are likened to being the two wings of a bird, inseparable, interwoven. And I think interwoven into every step of our path and journey is to understand and to find the ways to heal suffering. And I think in that journey, even now, you know, research tells us compassion is not an optional add-on to the path of healing, that it is central to the path of healing. And there is, in this tradition, the encouragement to let compassion, to allow compassion to be our deepest motivation and aspiration. As I'm sure you have reflected on this in your own work. I want to read you a a dedication from the Tibetan tradition that I find very lovely. It says, May I be a protector for those in danger, a guide for travelers on the way. May I be a boat or a bridge for all those who wish to cross the water. May I be a lamp for those who need light. May I be a place of rest for those who are tired. May I be a doctor in the medicine, and may I be the nurse for all sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. Now, compassion begins, of course, in the very same place that most of us begin our journey, with not only an awareness of suffering, but also an understanding that not all suffering can be fixed and not all suffering can be avoided. With also the understanding that suffering is not a mistake and it's not a personal failure. And the questions that arise from that awareness is really how can suffering be healed in ourselves, in the world? How can suffering be responded to embraced, and what does it even mean to heal suffering and to bring it to an end? I think that these are very timeless questions of every spiritual path, every life. In Pali, the word for compassion is karuna. And karuna, translated, means a heart that can tremble in the face of suffering, a heart that can tremble in the face of suffering. And what is being described here in compassion is is not a feeling or an emotion necessarily, but it's described a very awakened, a very spacious, a very unshakable heart that is connected with a genuine sense of immediacy to every moment of pain. Now that compassion, as it's talked about, is deeply rooted in the very keen awareness of interconnectedness and the interdependence of all things, of all life. And it's described as a heart of fearlessness that also deeply understands the emptiness of all views of self and all views of other. 
And compassion, as is taught here, is not a destination. It's a practice. And again, it's not a noun. It's a verb. I I would venture to say that compassion is the most meaningful embodiment of emotional maturity and freedom. The Dalai Lama once said that if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. It's, I think, obvious to us that for, for the heart to tremble in the face of suffering, first, we need to be awake. We need to be aware. For us to learn to be open and steadfast in the face of suffering, we need to find the ways to stay near to pain, to stay near to suffering. In the path of mindfulness, we're encouraged to contemplate the body internally and externally, to contemplate the story of our body and to contemplate the story of all bodies. We're encouraged to contemplate feeling internally and externally, to contemplate the landscape of our heart and to contemplate the landscape of all hearts. We're encouraged in the Satipatthana to to contemplate the mind internally and to contemplate the mind externally, to contemplate the life of all minds. The way that I read this teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta is that it's an encouragement to honor and to respect and to know our stories, but it's also the encouragement to reach beyond the boundaries of our stories, to know our stories well, and to know that they are a microcosmic view of all stories. And I think this is an encouragement that nudges us towards the language of us. Rather than the language of I and you, the language of we, the language of us. It's to nudge us towards an understanding of our interconnectedness and the compassion that allows us to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves. And to learn what it means simply to be steadfast in the magnitude of suffering that is held within all the stories. What does it mean? I I think people often, those of you who've read the Satipatthana Sutta, often think, well, what does it mean to contemplate internally and externally? We do see that the world, as one author put it, is not made of atoms, but the world is made of stories. And the world as we know it is a world of interwoven stories. This room holds a world of stories, and they're all unique in so very many important ways, and yet They're just listening to each other today, listening to each other yesterday, listening to each other in in the interview groups. We can't help but notice the universal themes that run through our stories. If we reflect upon our own stories of loss and disappointment that we've been asked to meet and embrace, the way, if we reflect on the ways in our lives that we've been, that we've suffered through rejection or blame, the heartache of despair or loneliness or fear, if we think of the story of our body and some of the pain and the illness that we've met or maybe meeting right now, if we think of the story of our minds, not only with their loveliness but the way that they can torment us with obsession and self-judgment and blame. If we think in our stories, each of our stories, of the adversity life has brought and some of the afflictions our mind has brought. And then if we just were to expand our awareness just a little, 
sense of people on either side of you, the people you've sat with and listened to over these days. And do we imagine that anyone in this room has been exempt? Do, could we imagine still that there's anyone in this room ha- who has not met or has not been asked to meet their own measure of hardship and adversity? I mean, is there even one person in this room who doesn't know what it means to be lonely or to, be, or to struggle or to be afraid? Is there one person in this room who can say that they're exempt from pain and illness and death? It is the story of life. It does not diminish the universality of those themes, the universality of these stories, does not diminish or lessen in any way our own story. But we begin to understand the tapestry of suffering in this life, the size of the cloth. There's a story from the time of the Buddha of a a mother, a young mother called Kisa Gotami, who was born into a rather lower class and happened to marry upwardly. And she had a son. And in society, Indian society at that time, to be a mother and especially to have a son granted you a certain stature a certain prestige even, and her child died. And she was distraught with grief. And she went to the Buddha cradling the body of her son in her arms, begging the Buddha to bring her son back to life. Now, the Buddha, the story didn't just say, be with the pain. He asked her to go and knock on every door on the village. And if she could bring back to him a mustard seed from one house where no one had died, he would grant her wish. And she went through the village knocking on the door of every house saying, is is this a house where no one has died? And at every house she was told no. Someone, had, someone we have loved has died here. And she went from house to house. And she began to see, she began to see the universality of the pain of loss. And holding her son, she said to the body of her child, Dear one, I thought you alone had been overtaken by death. I thought I alone could suffer this terrible grief. And it's said that she she saw all of the mothers through time who had cradled their dead children, and her heart softened. The grief was there. But she understood the story of life. This is not the whole story. Is there any one of us here who has not experienced times when our hearts and minds have been shattered by ignorance or by confusion? When we, is there anyone of us here who has never spoken out of greed or rage or hatred? And when we sense the world around us, it's hard to find any single being who has not done the same thing. And again, this is not the whole story. Can we understand that we live in a world of beings who are united in their longing for safety, their longing to be protected, united in their longing to be free from pain, to be free from fear, and understand that all beings share in the longing to be loved, to be cared for and understood? Can we see even the anger and the the rage and the ill will Uh, and the ignorance of others, again, not as theirs, but as ours too. It's almost as if we were one single organism, being born, living, breathing, and dying. And in this, 
really doing our best. Really doing our best to find a way to peace, to be happy, to be free. This is the understanding of interconnectedness, and it is this understanding of interconnectedness that is the ground for a heart of kindness, the ground of compassion that encourages us and inspires us to live in the light of compassion. Milarepa, one of the great Indian teachers, even said, just as I instinctively reach out to care for and heal a wound in my leg as part of this body, why should I not reach out instinctively to heal and care for a wound in another wherever it exists as part of this body? I think out of this understanding of of interconnectedness, there can rise a very natural and wise compassion. There is suffering. There is a trembling of the heart. And there is an instinctive reaching out, a gesture of unconditional compassion. Compassion is not a response of passivity. And compassion doesn't, have, doesn't fill, pass through the filters of, is this a worthy pain? Is this an unworthy suffering? What will, what, am I good enough to respond? Or do I deserve the response of compassion? There is no blame and no hierarchies in the landscape of suffering, and there is no blame and no hierarchies in the landscape of compassion. The Dalai Lama once said that Compassion is the radicalism of our time. And I, I've reflected on that a lot and, and endeavored to understand what, what he means, what, what is radical about compassion. And I th- my understanding of what is radical about compassion is that it is really, compassion is swimming against the tide of self-protection and fear and self-cherishing, two of some fairly predominant themes in our world and in ourselves. You know, how many, how many times, you know, you hear the message, you know, look out for number one, you know, pursue the dream of a perfect life, get as much personal happiness as you can find, doesn't really matter how many people you step on on the way, you know, just do it, you know, get it together for yourself. I think many of you probably remember last year when that plane crashed in the Hudson in New York and everybody survived. And I don't know if any of you read any of the stories or the accounts of people after they, you know, got off the plane and all that stuff. And I read this remarkable story. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it said that a few survivors recounted that when the plane landed, that there were those who trampled over the heads of everyone <laughs> in order to get to the exit door first. And there were those who went up the aisle trying to help the elderly and the people with small children get off the plane, put their coats around them. And we'd all like to think, wouldn't we, that we're the ones who go up the aisle helping everybody else off, you know. And we would hate to think of ourselves as being the ones who kind of stormed up the aisle, tramping on old ladies' heads, you know, and squashing children. Do we know? (laughs) Do we know how we would respond? Do we actually know? You can really see in the times of greatest fear and in the times of greatest danger how often that movement towards self-protection, you know, really does rise pretty much to the forefront, doesn't it? Even on retreats, I've seen it, you know, the experience of a retreat running out of food. You know, until that moment, everybody's been so patient about going to lunch. I only need to run out of food once, and there's a stampede out of the hall. You know, I'm going to get first in the line. It's not going to happen to me. (laughs) The radicalism of our time. It is very human to turn away from the unpleasant. It is a very human thing 
turn away from the unpleasant and nobody is asking us to like the unpleasant or the difficult. But some of the problems that arise for us is that we see, begin to imagine that happiness is going to be born only if we can get rid of suffering. And then we are waging really a battle, a war with life. And so little ground for compassion to arise. I think the fertile ground for the birth of <laughs> compassion really lies in our willingness to embrace suffering. Now, it is very important to acknowledge that you know, self-protection, self-consciousness, and, and all the anxieties that arise from them are really part of the human condition. They're not something to be ashamed of, and not something to judge, they're not something to call bad. But they are something to understand and to begin to see that in truth our attachment and preoccupation with self-protection actually doesn't make us happy, but it makes us suffer more. So compassion is not an encouragement at all to move from self-protection to self-loathing or self-denial. Compassion is not an encouragement to start blaming or shaming ourselves in the moments when we feel self-centered. But again, to really look very fearlessly and wisely in the eye of self-preoccupation and ask ourselves, does this really lead to suffering or does it lead to the end of suffering? And maybe out of that understanding, out of the understanding, that self-cherishing really does actually create a lot of pain in our lives. We can begin just to hold it a little bit more lightly and to widen our circle of concern, to widen our circle of cherishing, to cherish and be concerned for the well-being of all beings, really actually to know <laughs> that my happiness is really directly linked to your happiness, that my fear is really directly knitted together with yours. And in a real sense, the depth of our happiness, in, depth of happiness in our lives, I think, is equal to the depth of our relatedness, inwardly and outwardly. The Dalai Lama even said, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating compassion for all puts the mind at ease. I love the simple way, it just says these like it. Yeah, like these really incredible challenges. <laughs> it's like, yeah, just cultivate the mind of compassion for all beings. You'll be very much happier. <laughs> but compassion does counter the tendency to fear, to resist, and to avoid suffering, the tendency to turn away from pain. We might say that the tendency or the inclination of compassion is to turn towards pain is to turn towards suffering. <coughs> Dogen, Dogen once asked his teacher, what is the mind of compassion? And his teacher answered, it is a soft and flexible mind. Dogen, Dogen asked, what is this soft mind? And his teacher answered, it is the willingness to let go of your body and mind. So how do we cultivate this soft, receptive mind? Well, I think we sit here in the center of the world of all suffering. It happens to be where we are in this moment. And every human being sits in the same place, in the center of the same world. We sit with all the ill will and hardship and pain we can meet in our lives and we know that all beings are doing exactly the same. 
It is where the Buddha sat when he sat under the Bodhi tree. And we're learning to open to that truth. And this is where compassion is radical because also it asks us to find that kind of fearlessness of a Buddha. And that doesn't mean there's no fear. It doesn't mean there's no fear. There can be plenty of fear. We can be afraid of being overwhelmed by pain. We can be afraid of being overwhelmed by the magnitude of suffering many of you encounter in your work, in your lives. We can be afraid that we're not vast enough to embrace it, not able enough. But that fear can be there without us taking it up and running with it and closing down. Fear can be there without us becoming fearful. Because being fearful and being self-protective are so married together in a terrible, terrible marriage. And I, I'm sure you see, as I see in our world and our times now, you know, how there is this kind of such a strong encouragement to I and you, us and them, the other, the magnification, the exaggeration of this fearful other that we have to protect against, you know, the encouragement to be mistrustful, suspicious, which is why I can't get my visa. But there you go. <laughs> It is actually, but how much that kind of solidifies the kind of story of self and other, the endless alienation and conflict, you know, and ending that alienation doesn't begin, it begins nowhere else except with us. And that is a radical act to let go of those pathways of living in a fearful way of living in a suspicious way, living in a mistrustful way. It's a radical act to let go of those pathways of dividing the world into friends and enemies, those we have to mistrust and those we can allow close to us. It is a radical act to, to step out of that pathway of life and to connect again with the soft mind, the receptive mind the flexible mind. There was a Tibetan monk I once went to listen to, and it was... He'd spent 21 years imprisoned, most of it in solitary confinement. He was beaten, he was tortured, he was mistreated on a daily basis. His life was continually under threat. And yet he emerged and he came out and year after year he's met with many people and spoken with many people about the torment of those years. And he doesn't speak with despair or hatred. And when I went to listen to him speak, he held in his hands some of the instruments, some of the things he'd been tortured with. And when the Dalai Lama met with this monk, he asked him, in these years, were you ever in danger of losing your life? And he said, many times. He said, but the times of my greatest danger were the moments when I was in danger of losing a sense of compassion for my jailers. seemed to suggest he felt many things other than compassion during those years. Who wouldn't? But despite the range of those feelings, his commitment to compassion enabled him to survive and to do more than survive, to have a heart free from hatred. This biographical sketch was written about this man an appearance almost of timidity on first meeting, a voice so quiet it might be a whisper. 
He could easily pass unnoticed until you met his gaze, a gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything. Seen beyond the suffering he has experienced, beyond all the evil and abuse he has witnessed, yet yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings. It's very easy to idealize such people. And yet throughout time, in the past and in the present too, many of these people we can meet. And they are not necessarily, you know, a saint before he was imprisoned. You know, it's, it's, it's important not to romanticize or idealize, but to acknowledge the incredible potential nobility of the human heart in the most adverse and difficult situations. So Dogen's teacher talks about the compassionate heart as being soft, flexible, receptive, vulnerable, but also needs to be wise and discriminating because at times we do feel in danger of becoming lost in suffering. At times we do feel in danger of losing our ground of stability when we're faced with the magnitude of pain. And the softness of the compassionate heart really does need the vigilance and the wisdom and the protection of mindfulness. Anger, blame, self-righteousness, anxiety, all can and do arise in the face of suffering. It's not that they shouldn't arise, they do. But we can learn how to surround them with equanimity and acceptance and spaciousness, allow them to arise and pass the currents of those emotions without becoming lost in those currents. We can know how to listen and learn how to listen. And we need to discern when wise giving and action is is asked of us and also to discern when it is wise to step back and also when it's wise to say no. We need to listen inwardly to the signals of our own hearts and minds when they are signaling distress because sometimes they are the moments not when we try to be compassionate, you know, when we try to show up. Sometimes that distress is telling us it's the time to pause, it's the time to rest, it's the time to step back, it's the time to reclaim the steadiness of that grounded heart. Because to train ourselves in compassion, and I think it is a training, to train ourselves in boundless and unconditional compassion relies upon being able to listen inwardly, listen outwardly. So when does compassion most easily falter? Well, I think there's two grounds. I know this, at least this is true in my experience. One place for the ground where compassion easily falters is on that rocky ground when we, when, you know, day after day you might show up in your work and face pain and suffering. You open your eyes, you open your hearts to the magnitude of pain in this world, and you have a sense it is impossible. It's impossible to make a difference, impossible to bring suffering to an end. And then the other place where compassion easily falters is in the face of ignorance, in the face of those who abuse, misuse, who perpetuate suffering, who inflict harm. And recently I read a story about a woman in a refugee camp in Darfur. And she said, If she went out to fetch water in the morning, she risked the almost certain possibility of being raped or even killed. If she didn't go out to fetch water in the morning, she risked the almost certain possibility that her children would die of thirst. 
I use one story amongst countless stories of people in this world who are faced on a daily basis with unimaginable choices and unimaginable suffering. And I think we, we are asked to imagine. We are asked to accept, sorry, we are asked to accept the impossibility of ending all suffering and to act as if it was possible to do so. To accept the impossibility and to act as if it's possible to do so. So in the, in the teaching of compassion, as I was trained, empathy is the ground of compassion. I mean, we can't actually feel another person's feeling or experience their heart or life. But we know we live with a heart and a life. And we know we live in our heart with this capacity for hatred, for love, for fear, and the longing for the freedom from fear. In the Bodhisattva vow, the commitment of compassion, in the Mahayana tradition, it says, although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. People speak of compassion fatigue. People speak of compassion fatigue. The sense that it's just too much. Too much to take on, too much to persevere with, too overwhelming. I sometimes wonder what that is. Sometimes I think it's because People have forgotten how to be compassionate to themselves, how to listen inwardly, and to know when it's right to step back and to pause and to regather. But I think sometimes compassion fatigue happens because we start to see compassion as a a solution, as a way to fix something, or we might have an agenda for someone to change or for something to change. And I think so often in this practice we're asked again and again to find that depth of listening, that depth of connectedness and compassion that asks for nothing in return and to act and live in a way as if it is truly possible to heal the suffering of all beings and to do this in the face of the seemingly impossible. Kuan Yin translated from the Chinese means to one who listens to the cries of the world. One who listens to the cries of the universe. I think taking our seat in compassion is really finding that willingness to listen, to gently align ourselves with the commitment to protect, the commitment to heal, to protect our own hearts, from despair and ill will and resignation and fear, just as we would wish to protect others. And every moment we do that in some real way, I have total confidence that we are lessening the mountain of suffering in the world. And in doing so, we are protecting all beings. Now, the second place where compassion easily falters, and I think this is the hardest one, is in the face of people who really do in their lives perpetuate violence or suffering or pain, who abuse, who kill, even those who in much less extreme ways harm, judge us, you know, blame us, speak harshly to us, accuse us, ignore us. In one of the traditional Buddhist texts, the Vasudhimaga, it describes this way of practicing compassion. It says, first, first invite into your attention all of those in this world who are suffering, who are innocent, who are blameless, a child with cancer, an elderly person just struggling to make it through each day, 
that a person caught up in a natural catastrophe, a natural disaster, in a war that is not of, all, of their own making. Reflect on them, invite them into your heart. Sense your response. Then it says, go from there, invite into your heart someone who causes pain and to see the suffering, the suffering that is twofold, the suffering that is inflicted on others and the suffering of the violent, enraged, confused, ignorant heart. This is a hard one. (laughs) This is a really hard one. What does compassion mean in the face of ignorance and harm? Sometimes it means the fearlessness of saying no to the cause of suffering. It is what an ethical life is, to reach out. No, certainly compassion is not about condoning harm or condoning ignorance. It means reaching out to protect where protection can be offered to be a friend to have those who have no friend, to be a refuge to those who have no refuge. But compassion doesn't always try to explain ignorance. Suffering is suffering. (coughs) And again, it is coming back to knowing that at times too, we too act in ways that are born of confusion. Just as no being is exempt from suffering, it is hard to find any being that is exempt from ignorance. And compassion is about not meeting ignorance or confusion with more ignorance and confusion. And in many ways, our compassion needs to be equal in size, not only to the suffering in the world, but to the confusion and ignorance in the world. Ryokin, he once says, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all of the people in this floating world. I used to argue endlessly with my teacher about this because I would get all these teachings on compassion and I'd go so far. You know, I was cool with the innocent. You know, that was fine. You know, no problem. Friends, loved ones, no problem. Got to this part about people who harmed and I... He would say, swallow the blame. And I'd say, no way. And he'd say, swallow the blame. And I'd say, no way. I'd swallow the blame. These folks are going to get away with it. You know, they won't know the harm they're doing. You know, they're, they're going to keep on doing it. He'd say, swallow the blame. And I started to understand that swallowing the blame was not anything about justifying the suffering or anything like that, but it was actually liberating the heart to be able to respond. It was actually liberating why the capacity to liberate the response, liberate wise action, that blame, what did blame do? More alienation, more, more estrangement, more disconnection, more suspicion, more fear. Swallow the blame. I think compassion begins with understanding too that ignorance is part of the mandala of suffering. In this teaching, ignorance is suffering. It's, it's like ignorance is suffering. It's not just that ignorance causes suffering. Ignorance is suffering. And if there was no suffering, there'd be no ignorance. If there was no ignorance, there'd be no suffering. We are asked to respond to that as much as we're at with compassion, as much as we're asked to respond with compassion to an alien body or a broken heart. That there are no boundaries, no boundaries to compassion. The Dalai Lama, it doesn't mean that compassion doesn't falter in the face of ignorance, but it doesn't have to fail. The Dalai Lama once said, he said, I cannot pretend to be compassionate all of the time. He says, but it, it is the, I, I feel it is the most noble quality of a human being, and I aspire to it. In South Africa, when they had the truth and reconciliation meetings after the ending of apartheid, when those who'd been tortured met their torturers, when those uh, people who had killed 
met the mothers, the fathers, the sisters, the brothers of those who'd been killed, and they sat together in the same room. And there was healing. And Archbishop Tutu, he once said in those moments when there could be a looking in the eye of one another, he would say, it is time to be silent now. He said, something sacred has entered this room. Something sacred has entered this room. I think it is often in the face of ignorance that we can begin to discover depths of compassion that we never even knew were possible for us. There's a saying that true prayer becomes possible when all doors are closed and our hearts have turned to stone. In this teaching, the Buddha speaks of the liberation of the heart through compassion. The liberation of the heart through compassion. Cultivating the soft, the flexible mind, the vast and spacious heart that can tremble in the face of suffering and that can respond, dedicated to healing, suffering and sorrow wherever it exists. I want to end with a poem, The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go down and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Just have a moment quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.